We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing, of course, our study of the gospel of Matthew, and we're seeing really the life of Christ is seen through the eyes of Matthew, and Matthew presents Jesus as the king, the king of kings, the king of the Jews, the Messiah, and the Savior. As you know, and we've said this many, many times, each of the gospels presents Jesus in a different light. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, and Mark presents him as the servant. Luke presents him as the perfect man, and John presents him as God. So as we're going through the gospel of Matthew, and of course we just started, but as we go through it, you'll see that Jesus... Christ, according to Matthew, he's showing that Jesus is the King of the Jews, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. As we look already in the study, we've already seen his background, which was the lineage. We saw his birth. We saw the beginning of his ministry. And and now we've seen basically uh, Jesus meeting with his disciples, but on the side of a long hill. Now, let me remind you of something. We saw his ministry. Let me put this up for you. His ministry was threefold, teaching proclaiming the gospel and healing. This was a summary statement. If you read back in verse 24 of Matthew 5, excuse me, Matthew 4, it says the news about him spread, excuse me, verse 23, and Jesus was going through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease among the, uh, every kind of sickness among the people. So he had three things he was doing. He was teaching, he was proclaiming the salvation message, and he was healing people. And we notice that at the verse 25 of chapter four, it says, large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. And if you remember, we put this map up just to give you an idea. Here's Jerusalem, and he was born in Bethlehem, which is right down there, but he, he you know, he, he's grown up in Nazareth, this little town. We remember he came down to this region, was baptized by John the Baptist out in that region right there to identify with mankind. He goes back up to Nazareth, basically preaches in Nazareth, and they want to kill him, so he leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum and sets up his headquarters at Capernaum. And so what we're seeing is Jesus, as we study through the gospel of Matthew, we're going to see Jesus going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida and and Tiberias and all these, Magdala and Capernaum and all these towns around there. We're not sure exactly where the Sermon on the Mount happened. Some people say it maybe happened on this side. Some people say it may happen on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But anyway, he gathers, he's got his, he picked his 12 disciples. He sits down with them on the side of a long sloping hill, all these crowds are there, people are there, and so they all gather around to listen. So the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is directed to his disciples, but of course everybody is listening to it. And so we're seeing, we've come to that special time, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he has begun the ministry, large crowds are following, and chapters 5, 6, and 7, that's all at one time. And he's teaching. There's no telling whether this is everything that he taught. We know this is what Matthew wrote down in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he taught on the side of the hill. For the last several weeks, we looked at what's called the Beatitudes. That's the first verses, basically, of this long time. It says, blessed is the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the... And he's, he does all that, and he basically gives you a, 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 an idea of a person who's going to live righteously and godly in the fallen world. And we have said that the Sermon on the Mount is the moral aspect of how we live as believers. And it could be for any believers at any time because there's a moral aspect from Adam and Eve all the way to Moses. And then Moses all the way to Christ, under the Mosaic law, there was a moral aspect. And then after Christ dies on the cross and rises again, we're not under the Mosaic law, but there's still the moral aspect of law and that, or the moral aspect of how we live. And that's what the, God, the uh, Sermon on the Mount basically gives us, principles for living righteously in a fallen world. This morning, we move from the Beatitudes to a part which I call the influence. 
the influence of those in the kingdom. How are we to live? And how, what are we supposed to do? What kind of influence are we going to have on those around us? And what we see is that we, he calls, we call this the salt and light passage because believers are called salt and light in our fallen world. And we're going to talk about it because that's what he says in the verses this morning that we read earlier. And so we want to see how that fits together as we go through our study. Now, I think one of the great passages, and if you, if you came to me and said, what is this church all about? We would say, our purpose is to make disciples. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's called the Great Commission. And making disciples involves two things, evangelism and training. I want to stop for a minute because evangelism, of course, sharing your faith, and then uh, the training part is where you take believers and you train them, equip them to reproduce themselves. Well, I want to talk about evangelism for just a second because this is what, uh, when we start talking about being salt and light in our community, that's how we go out and we live in such a way that we touch lives for Jesus Christ. And so when you think about evangelism, there's really two sides to it or two parts to evangelism. One is what we say and the other is what we do. What we say is our words and our message. What we do is our lifestyle. Now think about it, our message. We call it the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So when we go out these doors, we have a message, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for sin and rose again to conquer death, and whoever will believe in him will never perish but have everlasting life. That's our message. But also, there's a lifestyle aspect of evangelism. And what I mean by this is, if you have and give the message only and do not live out a righteous life, they won't listen to you. If you live out a righteous life but don't give out the message, they'll never know. So it goes together. Think about Colossians 3.17 where Paul said, Whatever you do in notice, word, that's your message, or deed, that's your lifestyle, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That basically, whatever we do, our words and our deeds. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus is talking more about the lifestyle. How do we live? What's the basis? We're going to be salt and light, and we'll talk about it. And so Jesus actually calls us the salt and the light. And the goal is to understand it and put it together. Our church is very, very strong on the grace message that we believe salvation is a gift. It is not by works. We don't do works to be saved. We don't do works to stay saved. We don't even do works to prove you're saved. We, 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 salvation is a gift by faith alone and Christ alone. But as believers, we are to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so as believers, we're to live in such a way that people see us and they go, wow, they are different. They live differently. They're good people. They're righteous. They're godly, those kind of things. Jesus said that we've got to influence our community. And that's really the, the thing. What are we doing as a body of believers to touch the lives of people in this community? Because sometimes they're not going to listen to us at all unless we touch their lives in a good way. So Jesus talks about that. We have seen the Beatitudes. The first one, as you know, was a present tense one where it says, blessed, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He says when you realize that, you're, that you need a Savior and you're bankrupt and you trust in Jesus, you have the kingdom. And then the rest of them are all future until you get to number 9, or number 10, uh, verse 10, and it talks about persecution. And we saw that last, last time. It's not a very fun thing, but the truth is if you stand for Jesus Christ in a fallen world, you'll be persecuted because if they hated him, they'll hate you. And that's exactly what we saw last time. In fact, he said this, rejoice. Because if you stand for Jesus Christ and you're persecuted, you'll be rewarded when you stand before your Savior. We want to hear him say, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Well, this morning as we look at this passage, verses 13 through 16, we see the issue of salt and light. And let me just read this. Let me read 13 and 14. Just listen to this. Verse 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on underfoot. You are the light of the world. And then he goes on and talks about a city. So he says salt and light. So let's look at this. What does he mean? And what does he mean that you are the salt and you are the light? What does that mean? Well, let's start with the salt. Verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. That's what he says. You're the salt. And it's emphatic, by the way, when he was talking to the 12, the way it's written in the Greek, he's saying you, and he's pointing out those 12 guys. We can take this and say, okay, we're we're disciples of Christ. We're the ones who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to live for him. So we can make application that he's telling to us, we're the salt of the earth. It's emphatic. So he's talking to those 12 guys. At this time, salt was almost... Probably, probably almost more important than it is to us today. You can't live without salt. We know that. It's valuable. In fact, at that time, sometimes people were paid by salt. You did a job, they said, here's salt. It goes back to, you remember the old saying that says, that guy, he's not even worth his salt. Because they were paid sometimes by salt. Salt does three things. I just want you to think about it. It preserves, it flavors, and it produces thirst. That's what it does. So let's think about that. When he says, you are the salt, of the earth. First of all, we preserve. At, back in those days, they'd put, they put salt on meat to stop the decay. I, I had a, a relatives. My Uncle Shed, you've heard me say, my Uncle Shed. My Uncle Shed was one of my heroes. And I said, I want to, Uncle Shed died at 89. So I said, well, I want to be like Uncle Shed. I'm going to die. You know, I want to live to at least be 89 like Uncle Shed. Uncle Shed lived in this place, and then there was a road, and then up the hill was another one of our relatives. But Uncle Shed had electricity an indoor bathroom, and everything. But these people in rural Mississippi, they didn't have anything. They had no electricity. They had a wood-burning stove. They had a fireplace in every room, so that's how they heated the place. They had a well. They had an outhouse. It was, you know, and they had a, a, a shed out back in which they hung the meat, and guess what they did? used? They used salt to keep it, to preserve it, because they didn't have the electricity. They didn't have a ref- refrigerator or a freezer. And I remember going to visit them. I, I, I remember the hardest part was going to the outhouse. I mean, it was. That was not very fun. And, and, and I, I just can remember, uh, I only went there in the wintertime, just rarely. But I remember, you know, you woke up in the morning and it was cold because there was no electricity. There was no heat. And, and then the, my, my other uncle, he would get up and he would light a fire in every fireplace in every room so that the house would warm up. So salt preserves And think about this. In the midst of a decaying world, what are we supposed to be with the salt? We preserve. We show what the world is. The world is getting worse and worse and worse. We already know that. In fact, uh, the other Thursday morning, or I think it was a Tuesday night at at a Bible study that we do with the board, we talked about uh, in about five different places in the old in the New Testament, where it talks about how the world is, gonna, is getting worse and worse and worse, and people will turn away from the truth, and the world gets worse and worse and worse. And it's true. But what are we supposed to be in a fallen world that's getting worse and worse and worse? We're the preservatives. We, we're trying. We're trying to live righteously and godly in a fallen world. Listen, our world is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be. Think what this world would be like with no Christians, no believers to stand for what is right. Listen, we talked about when we studied the book of Daniel, when the rapture happens and the believers are taken off the face of the earth, for a brief time, there are no believers on the face of the earth. And the world becomes 
a chaotic thing. There's a ten king federation and all that stuff that we studied in the book of Revelation. So think about this. Our world is bad, but it's not as bad as it could be because of you, because of the righteousness and the godliness of believers. I always think of, uh, and my favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey. Most of you may know the story of It's a Wonderful Life, and George Bailey gets himself sort of into trouble, and so he says, I wish I'd have never lived. And and by the way, George Bailey had a building alone, and he helped people get houses, and he was just a great man in that community. And But he got he, he, his uncle lost the money, and so, and so he thought, oh, no. And so he said, I wish I was never born. And God sends an angel to him and says, I'll show you your life if you had never been born. And this place called Bedford Falls was a really good place because George Bailey was a really good man. But if George Bailey had never lived, Bedford Falls became Pottersville. And Pottersville was a terrible town. And so he saw what his life would have been like, what the town would have been like, what the people would have been like if he hadn't lived. What would this world be like if the righteousness and godliness and the love of the Christians were not in this world? Who built all the hospitals? Let me ask you a question. Who built all the hospitals all throughout the world? It's the Christians built the hospitals. Who feeds all the people? Who gives most of the money? Who, you know who the biggest giver in all the world is? The United States gives more than all the other countries put together. This, this United States, the great, great country. But think about it. What if we weren't here? Jesus said, you are the salt. Somebody has got to help preserve what this is. Now, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. But just think if we weren't here. So the first aspect of us as salt is that we help preserve. There's a second thing is we add flavor. We show a different way to live. I mean, I look at some people, and I I can still remember, this is before O.J. Simpson ever got into trouble. And he had, had been in movies. He had been a great football player, a great college player, a pro player. He'd done everything you could ever name. And I saw an interview with him. Rich, and he said, something's missing in my life. Listen, you can be all the riches in the whole world, and if you don't have Jesus Christ, you're missing it. See, we, we add, the, the, the believers add the flavor. We show what a life of love and joy and peace and kindness is really like. We can show what a different way to live is. I'll never forget, I read an article by a woman who was, she was going to, she went to India to see what some missionaries do. She wasn't a Christian, but she went to do an an interview on some Christians and she got to this place and she saw this woman, this Christian woman, taking care of people with leprosy. Now, you know what leprosy does. You're, you're, everything falls apart. Your face falls off. Your skin falls off. Your fingers become nub. You know, your skin falls off. And so what this woman would do is because people's skins fall off, she would take these bandages and she would just wrap them around. And, and then after a while, it would just get terrible. And so she'd come unwrap the bandages and put wrapped bandages. And this person came up and saw her and she said, oh my gosh, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And she said, I wouldn't either but I do it for Jesus Christ. See, we we add something to this world that the world never knows. We show the love of Jesus Christ. Let me show you something. Our world says me first, but we say others first. Our world says power is what's the key. We say service is the key. Our world says what you got, possessions. 
We say, no, 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 it's not the temporary. It's the eternal. We add a flavor to life that they'll never see without us. We got to do it. So what does salt do? Preserves and adds flavor. There's one other thing that salt does, and we said it was produces thirst. Listen, if, if you go eat popcorn, you know what you need? You need a drink, right? I mean, you got to have something to drink with it because once you start eating popcorn or something with salt on it, you say, man, I'm thirsty. That's what we're supposed to do. We're to bring about a thirst, a thirst for Jesus Christ. We're to live in such a way that people say, I want what you have. I remember Prof. Hendricks would say, he'd say, he'd see somebody and they're all downcast and he'd say, how you doing? And they'd go, well, pretty good under the circumstances. And he'd say, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? Get out from under them. I read somebody wrote one time, it says, Christians are supposed to be the happiest people in the world. And somebody said, well, I wish they would tell their faces that, you know. I mean, so the truth is, we, we, we're different than anybody else. We, we should, people should say, what makes you different? Why are you happy? Why, why do you have joy? Why are you different? We want them to thirst, thirst for Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. We want them to thirst. So here's a question. Are we helping stop the decay by living righteously? Are we adding flavor because we're different and we're showing kindness and we're different to the world? Are we creating a thirst as they see the truth in Jesus Christ? So he said, you, you, you are the salt of the earth. But he throws out something. He says, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on underfoot by men. He says, listen, if the salt's not working right, and by the way, the word tasteless literally means foolish. It just means foolish. It says the salt's not doing what it's supposed to do. The salt is supposed to preserve. The salt is supposed to add flavor. The salt is supposed to produce a a, a thirst. If we're not doing that, he says, we're not doing what we're... It's it's like, well, you're kind of worthless. Just throw it out. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to be different. And when we're not, it's like we're worthless. We're, we're foolish. We're not doing what we're supposed to do. So guess what? We're the salt. And when we go out these doors, we're going to live in such a way that keeps this decaying world from decaying any faster than it is. And we're going to live in such a way that they see a love and a joy and a peace and a kindness. And we're going to live in such a way that it makes them thirsty for what we have and for them to say, what is it that you have that I don't have? That's what we're to do. But then there's a second thing. It says, you're the light. You're the light of the world. Look at verse 14. You're the light of the world. And the emphasis, again, is you. And he's talking to the disciples so we can make the application. We're the light of the world. Well, what does light do? Well, it does two things. It breaks the darkness and shows the way. That's what light does. Breaks the darkness and shows the way. You know, even, even a little bitty light can be seen. I mean, the smallest light at all can be seen. Sometimes I get up and... Uh, there's, I have this, I rarely use it, but it's an electric shaver because I don't like electric shavers very much. But it's got this little bitty light on it. And it's up under a cabinet. And sometimes the cabinet door's open. And in the middle of the night, I can get up and I go, there's a green light somewhere. Oh, yeah. That little bitty light up under that cabinet lights up. Light breaks the darkness. In a fallen, evil world, we break the darkness. And, and the second thing, it shows the way like the lighthouse does. It gives the direction. So men are in darkness and they need the light. And let's think about it. First of all, light breaks the darkness. Look at this verse. 
Paul says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God. That's us. Prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. How? In this midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as what? Lights in the world. We're the lights in the world. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, but we reflect his glory. We get to live out who he is. And we're supposed to show people that, 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 uh, that break that darkness and let people see the light. The second thing is we show the way. And we show the way, the, way, the truth, and the life is Jesus Christ. Let me show you uh, John 14, 60 is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through him. Look what Paul was told. This is when Paul had trusted Christ on the road to Damascus. Here's what God tells him. I'm going to deliver you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Now watch what he's going to do. You're going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Listen, we the ones that show people the light. We show them the way. How many people do you deal with every day that if you said, if you were to die, do you think you're going to heaven? And so many people will say something like, I hope I am. They don't even know. And then some of them even say, I'm pretty sure I am. And if you say, why do you think so? And they give you this answer and you go, oh my gosh, that has nothing to do with Jesus or salvation or the Bible or anything. You get to show them the way. You're the light of the world. You break the darkness and you show them the way. Well, he gives two examples. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on the lampstand and give light to all in the house. So the two examples, uh, well, the, the, the two examples are the city and the lamp. Now watch what he does when he talks about a city. A city can't be hidden. Do you know, I remember when we first moved to Stillwater, it's still kind of fun that we'd get off Interstate 35, come up 51, and if you get over a certain hill, you could look and you could see the lights of Stillwater. And I thought, that's where I live. That's where I live. Because you can see the lights, right? You can see the lights. Sometimes I watch, you know, football on TV, and if it's a night game, they always have the blimp up there, and, and they show the, the city, but it's all lit up because there's lights everywhere. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. We're the lights. We can't be hidden. We can't be hidden. People have got to see us. They've got to know what we believe, what we are, what we're all about. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anybody, you don't light a lamp and, and put it under a basket, is what he says. He says, you don't light the lamp and hide it. What do you do with a lamp? You put it on the lampstand. He says, you put it on the lampstand so it gives light to all that are in the house. Our purpose is not to be hidden. It is to proclaim the light of the world, Jesus Christ, to a city and a world that is in darkness. And we're not supposed to hide it. And that's when he goes on and gives the command. And look what he says, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. It's your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They have to see your works. Let your light shine before men. We break the darkness. We show the way. We live not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And so in Colossians 3, he says, in your words and your deeds, people see our good works. Our, the, the words is our message. They see our deeds, which is the, the salt and the light. People see our good works, and they glorify the Father. I love this. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what's the goal? 
They hear our message. They see our lives. They trust Jesus Christ as Savior. It takes both. Sometimes, sometimes you can just be and with somebody, you don't even know them, and something comes up, and you begin to talk, and you share with them, and you tell them the truth about Jesus Christ, and they trust in Christ. Sometimes that happens. But a lot of times, you build relationships with people over a period of time, and they see your life, and they see how you live. Because if you live bad and you want to tell them about Jesus, they go, why don't I listen to you? You're worse than I am. Right? So we got to live both. they got to hear our message. they got to see our lives and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Are we shining as lights in a fallen world? What about on the campus? What about in our neighbors, neighborhoods? What about on our jobs? What about just inter- interaction with other people? Are we the salt that preserves, adds flavor, and produces thirst? Are we the light that breaks the darkness and shows the way? As those who belong to Jesus Christ, we have to live in such a way that it touches lives for Jesus Christ. So let me give you some applications. It's it's simple. Let us glorify our Heavenly Father as we are the salt and the light in our community. What does he say? That they they see you and they see your good works and they glorify God who's in heaven. Let's glorify our Heavenly Father, as they see, as we're the salt and the light. First of all, let's be the salt. Let's be the salt. Stop in the decay. Live in such a way that it slows down how bad everything is. Let's, let's, add, let's, let's add the flavor. Let's be so different that they say, wow. And let, let's live in such a way that we produce the thirst that they come up and say, I want to know why you're different. I want to know what makes you different. I mean, everybody else gets mad about this, and you, you don't get mad about it. Let's be the light. Let's break the darkness. Let's show what a lifestyle living for Christ can be. Let's show the way to have eternal life. May we glorify our God and Savior as we are the salt and the light in our community.